And we're in a very, very good position to drive the technology improvement that's needed for, particularly for developing countries, to make what is economically a much harder change than it is for a place like the United States or Europe. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Angus Taylor, the Australian Minister for Energy and Emissions. Minister Taylor is responsible for Australia's energy and climate policy, and he has led the development of a new domestic climate policy to reduce emissions, as outlined in the recently announced Technology Investment Roadmap. Joining the minister to talk about this new technology-led approach are my colleagues, Sarah Ladislaw and Lachlan Carey. Together, they discuss the mechanisms that underpin this roadmap and why it's a good match for Australia. They also look at the priorities underpinning this new policy with an emphasis on the agribusiness industry and the climate farming initiative. Finally, they turn to areas for potential global progress on energy and climate issues with the Biden administration, with Australia's neighbours, and in multilateral forums like the G20. Let me turn it over to Sarah now to kick off the conversation with Minister Taylor. Well, Minister Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on Energy 360 today. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to bring you in and talk about the technology investment roadmap that you've been working on and some recent announcements you've made about that. Can you explain um, a little bit about what's in the roadmap, but then also what do you mean by what you've said in, in talking about this? What is a technology-led approach and how is this different from the previous approaches that you've, you've had in Australia to dealing with the issue of emissions reduction? Sure. Well, the starting point is that when you boil down uh, policies to bring down emissions, they come broadly into two categories. Uh, category one is technologies that allow us to reduce emissions in all sorts of activities, both energy and non-energy activities, like agriculture, for instance, but technologies that allow us to do that without imposing extra costs. So technologies which have come to economic parity, commercial parity, with their higher emitting alternatives. The only other way of doing it is some kind of implicit tax. Uh, and that means imposing a cost which uh, reduces economic activity. It's designed to do that, um, particularly higher emitting economic activity. And, and that means you are imposing economic burdens on someone in the economy. Typically, actually, it's quite regressive. A carbon tax is, can be very regressive because those least able to pay are the ones who wear a disproportionate burden of, of the tax. So we say the choice is technology versus taxes. It's very clear to us that for Australia, and indeed we would argue for, for the world, the technology-led approach is the far better approach to do it. Now, you say, how's it different from the past? In many ways, this is actually what we've been doing. We're recognising that and we're saying it's working, so let's do a whole lot more of it. And to give you an illustration of that, the last uh, year or so, Australia's investment in renewables has been 10 times the global average, four times the United States, four times Europe. Um, it's been absolutely extraordinary. The lead in that is household solar, where we are the leader in the world. Uh, one in four households now has solar cells on their roofs, and it's climbing at a dramatic rate. And that's being chosen by consumers because the economics are working for them. So that's a really good example of a technology-led approach. But, you know, there's, a, I think, an excessive focus on electricity, which is about 30% of Australia's emissions and, and um, bit different depending on where you are in the world uh, but we are also focusing very much beyond electricity as well as in electricity 
to industry, to agriculture, to transport. These are the areas now where we have much more of a decarbonisation challenge. And indeed, uh, there are areas where emerging technologies are going to be key to bringing down emissions without imposing economic costs, economic burdens on those least able to afford it. And can we talk a little bit about what you just said, which is there's been a large focus on the electric power sector. There's been some focus on the transportation sector. I was looking at some of the technologies that you were talking about in a speech you recently gave that are in the roadmap. They're they're either focused on very specific parts of the electric power sector or things that relate to soil uh, or things that relate to the industrial sector, but not as much on electricity and transportation. Why do you think that's important from a technological perspective? Again, the starting point here would be that we're decarbonising, we're bringing the carbon emissions down in our electricity sector at a dramatic rate. So they've fallen almost 5% in the last year. That's continuing on. Uh, the increase in renewables going into the sector is very rapid. Indeed, the great challenge for us is to hold the, uh, the grid together as that's occurring. And it's co- occurring you know, increasingly on just a commercial basis because the economics are working. I'm here on my farm. We, we've been using renewable energy on farms here in you know, my family of farm for 200 years in this region. Um, we've been using renewable energy for 200 years, windmills. Um, I've got solar cells a couple hundred metres from where, where I am pumping our water. So the economics work on these technologies and increasingly so. Where we've got much more challenged is in the other 70% of emissions. And so the five priority technologies in our technology investment roadmap, which we've selected for the impact they can have on emissions in Australia and around the world, and this is an important point, and around the world, and for where we have competitive advantage. Those five are partly about electricity, but also very much about the other 70% of emissions. So hydrogen, uh, carbon capture and storage, soil carbon, uh, low emission steel and aluminium, you know, important manufacturing sectors, Uh, for this country and stored energy and stored energy is electricity of course because what you'll find and you're starting to see this in places like California is once your uh, your percentage of intermittent renewables gets up to a threshold of you know depends on your mix but maybe 20 percent something like that um, you will see that uh, the challenge of holding that grid together is enormous and storage and firming becomes the number one issue uh, gas is enormously helpful in that transition process. Do not understate the role that it can play. and We've seen that in comparisons across our states. Uh, but uh, we do need better stored energy solutions. Um, yeah, lithium batteries are coming along, particularly for cars, but are there broader stored energy solutions? Indeed, pump hydro, you know, I think is going to continue to play a very, very significant role, and we're investing heavily in that. But that broad range of priority technologies Uh, has the potential to reduce emissions across the board. In fact, those five technologies can substantially reduce or eliminate emissions in about, uh, in sectors responsible for about 90% of the world's emissions. Mm -hmm. And so we've chosen them from that point of view. Now, remember, Australia is an energy exporter. We are an energy superpower now. We, we, We are one of the biggest energy exporters in the world. And so we do see um, that whilst that creates challenges for us uh, as, you know, that, that's heavily weighted towards gas and coal. Um, we've created the biggest LNG export sector in the world in the last 10 years. Um, it, it also means that we have deep expertise in these energy sectors and we're in a very, very good position to drive the technology improvement that's needed for, particularly for developing countries, 
to make what is economically a much harder change than it is for a place like the United States or Europe. I also just you know, want to echo what you were just saying. Uh, the, the International Energy Agency has told us a number of times this year to really focus on the R&D challenges of some of these specific technologies that you're talking about because they're underrepresented in, uh, in what we need to do to tackle these deeper decarbonization goals. So it does certainly seem to be along the lines of what's being recommended on a, on a global scale too. But before turning to my colleague, Lachlan, I wanted to ask you one more question. We do follow uh, Australian uh, politics and discussions of climate change, and uh, they're exciting. They're almost as exciting as US politics sometimes. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about is how is this approach, this technology-led approach, addressing some of the political dynamics in the Australian sort of policy uh, uh, direction for, for the future of climate? And is there anything that, that we might be able to learn from that here in the U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a, um, you know, tra- trained as an economist. That was my academic postgraduate background and undergraduate background. And, uh, you know, I've followed this debate on climate and energy for, for decades now, since the 80s. And it has been an exciting debate around the world, but in Australia, it's been particularly topical because of the nature of our economy as much as anything else. And of course, the, the thinking in the early days was it's all just about carbon tax. You, you just got to put a carbon tax in place and, and, you know, all the externalities will be internalised and everything will sort itself out. Um, I think the Australian experience of this, and we were sort of in some ways an earlier pioneer, early pioneer with some of these policies, is that the, the politics and distributional impacts of a uh, carbon tax are very, very, very difficult. And, and that means then the political economy of actually having one that really works is extremely difficult. And there's two fundamental problems with it. Number one is uh, distributional. It's regressive. If you are poorer, Energy costs are a bigger part of your bill, full stop. That's how it works. Now, there's all sorts of redistributional stuff that people recommend to deal with that. But once you're in that world, you've got a money go round, and money go rounds are subject to political manipulation. Um, and, you know, that that is a problem. And we've seen that in Australia. And, and I think it's very, we've had more bitter experience of this than many countries. And it's, a, it's something I say to Fatty Barol at the IEA and, other, you know, the technology pathway is a pathway which distributionally is a much better pathway uh, than the tax-led pathway. Um, the, the second point I'd make about uh, carbon taxes is that they risk uh, offshoring your emissions without a reduction in global emissions. And that risk is very significant, particularly if you're a big energy exporter or indeed if you're a big importer uh, or have the potential to be a big importer of manufactured products. Of course, China's played an important role in this. Um, We saw that we were losing very significant trade exposed uh, businesses um, as uh, the carbon tax was introduced in this country many years ago. Um, And uh, of course, all that was happening was, you know, an aluminium smelter, for instance, was shutting, moving to Western China and the emissions per tonne of aluminium went up, went up. I mean, it was a pointless exercise. And we've seen this in Europe where they, they offshored a lot of their carbon emissions. Yes, yes, their emissions have come down because of their, their carbon trading scheme. There's no doubt about that. But those emissions have just been offshored to, to, to China, or a significant portion of them at least, offshored to places like China. So th- these are very significant challenges. There's all sorts of things people suggest to try and solve these problems. But, you know, frankly, 
the track record of, of getting outcomes is, is poor. On the other hand, when we look at where we're reducing emissions, it is all where there's been a breakthrough technology. And so I step back and say, hang on, let's look at our experience here. This, is, this debate's been going for not a few years, and many people have participated in recent years because it's become much more active. Those of us who have been around it for decades, you become much more realistic about what works and what doesn't, and much harder-headed about what's going to work in the future. And if I look at places like China and India, you know, big economic burdens, it's just not, when people are still relatively poor, it's unrealistic to ask for that. But to offer them technologies and work with developing countries on technologies, uh, which are coming to parity with their higher emitting alternatives, well, that works because there's no economic burden. So this is, a, to me, a pretty straightforward debate, and it's fundamental to our thinking. It is based on our history and experience, but I think it's, it's also based on the experience of countries and, and regions across the world. Excellent. Thank you. Lachlan. Yeah, thank you, Minister. So uh, you've sort of outlined the, the general approach and um, the priority technologies that have been identified within the roadmap. And as you mentioned, there are sort of these stretch goals that have been identified for each one of those priority technologies. So I guess I'm interested in the how. What is the government doing to go from identifying the priorities to achieving the stretch goals? And in particular, how do you sort of reconcile that with you know, your party, the Liberal Party, is the sort of centre-right party in Australian politics and comes at it from more of a, you know, free market uh, perspective. How do you reconcile sort of that economic perspective with what might be sort of criticised perhaps as an approach of picking winners, you know, when it comes to technologies and, and these goals? Yeah, no, yeah, again, great, great question, Lachlan. Let, let, let me talk about the how first and then the, the, the picking winners argument, which is an important question you raise. In terms of the pathways, the starting point is we have set stretch goals for each priority technology. So these are the very clear economic goals. So the first one we set was what we call H2 under two. That is the cost of hydrogen production to under $2 per kilogram. So how did we set that? We set that by saying at that point, it comes into parity with higher emitting alternatives. So we thought long and hard about what, what cost have you get, you've got to get hydrogen to before industry will adopt that just because the economics work. Now, for the US, you've got to do your currency conversion, of course, but we, we've done that for each one. So, you know, green steel at under $900 a tonne, uh, green aluminium under $2,700 a tonne, stored energy at, at, at around $100 a megawatt hour, uh, for, for long duration stored energy, which gives you a, an electricity price significantly below that. So we've gone through each one. We've set these targets. They're very, very explicit and they're all designed to be at parity. Now, the question then is how do you get there? You know, ultimately, this is about research, development and deployment. And R&D is something that governments have always done. You know, there's always been a strong case for governments being involved in, in R&D and there's a very strong case of course in, in this sort of R&D and so we are we're very actively involved and we are spending uh, significant R&D dollars on these technologies looking to do that with the private sector as much as possible and indeed we've been getting very high leverage ratios and we've got a hydrogen project going in in Victoria right now looking at reducing the cost of transporting hydrogen um, for every dollar that we've put in, we've got $9 from the private sector and state governments. So we look to leverage very, very strongly. And part of that is if a technology gets leverage, it's a good sign there's a technology in the future. 
uh, and this gets to your picking winners point. Um, so so we, we're very much looking to leverage. We also are looking very hard at the pathways. What are the lowest cost pathways to get this technology into circulation? So for instance, with some of the storage, energy storage technologies, the highest price point place to do that is often on the edge of a grid. And we've got lots of edges of grid in Australia because we're a very big country. So when you go to you know, a mining business at Mount Isa, or, or you know, in, in, in the middle of Western Australia, uh, they're not connected to the grid. They've got to create their own microgrid and what a fantastic laboratory for getting new technologies in at a price point where there's no economic burden because it's expensive power they're gonna have there now. Let's actually trial a hydrogen solar mix and see if we can, you know, and, and not just see if we can get, get this to work. And let's put some government money, because this is a pilot plant to, uh, you know, to, to bolster it. And, and that sort of pathway of finding the niches where you can get early uptake. Um, you know, we're seeing globally now, and because we play in the energy sector globally, there's really strong niches emerging. The Japanese, for instance, have got a real challenge with bringing down emissions because of Fukushima and the loss of their nuclear generators. Um, and they've had to shift to coal, their emissions have been going up. So they are very, very hungry for hydrogen. So building a hydrogen industry alongside Japan, we're a long-term supplier to Japan of iron ore, coal, gas, and so we have deep customer relationships. So there's a pathway for us to start building this hydrogen industry and pushing it down towards H2 under two. So we're looking for the pathways, we're making R&D investments. In terms of picking winners, look, by looking for leverage, that gives us an indication of where the private sector is, is interested, and, and this is a crucial point. But, you know, we're realistic. In R&D, you have to pick winners, but you do it as part of a portfolio, and this is the key. Good R&D portfolios give good outcomes. It's not an individual R&D investment that's gonna get this right. It's an R&D portfolio. Globally, I think we need to be thinking about that R&D portfolio. You know, how, how does Australia work with the United States, with Europe, with Japan, and with other countries on getting that portfolio right? Yes, it will never be a completely centralised, you know, it shouldn't be. There should be a lot of bottom-up organic development of that. But uh, thinking about where we've got technologies that are coming into the money, that look like they're going to win in a key sector, and that where R&D with government support can play a role, I think that's critical to solving these really difficult problems. I totally agree. Um, and another feature of the roadmap that I think might surprise our listeners is the prominent role that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation plays, which is the world's largest green bank. Uh, and here in the US, you've seen you know a number of uh, proposals coming out uh, advocating for a national climate bank or a national infrastructure fund, these sorts of proposals. So I was just wondering if you could spend a bit of time spelling out the role that the CEFC plays in the technology investment roadmap. And again, sort of how you reconcile a publicly uh, you know, funded or capitalized financial institution with perhaps a more conservative uh, leaning you know, political or economic philosophy. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and of course, my side of politics, our, our relationship with the CFC in the early days was mixed. I think Locke and you were aware of that. But you know, in the time leading up to me becoming minister, and certainly when I became minister, I took the view that this is actually a critical tool in our toolkit. And there's a couple of things to like about it if you're on the centre-right side, but let me explain what it does first. It's essentially providing finance to those emerging technologies 
where the risk profile is, is too high for traditional commercial banks to provide the full financing, but uh, still a risk profile where you can expect a reasonable return on investment. So from the taxpayer's perspective, actually the return from the CFC, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, has been a, a solid one. It's been well better than the government bond rate and taxpayers have done, have done well out of it. And as a, as a conservative politician, that's important to me. I mean, we don't want to impose burdens on taxpayers if we can possibly avoid it. And it turns out the CFC hasn't, hasn't imposed a burden. And I don't think it should ever need to. But there is this critical stage of technology development, which is often quite commercial, what I describe as economic but not bankable. So you'll get a technology where the economics on paper, you can see it works. It's sort of, well, actually, this is coming into parity with an alternative. Businesses should be putting it in place. But the bankers look at it and say, nah, you know, pretty credit says credit in the banks. And we've got a you know, pretty conservative banking sector that, that had a traditional very strong focus on residential mortgages. Um, risk profile too high. So the CFC steps in, provides cornerstone lending, will often bring commercial banks in behind it. Uh, and it has now a very soon about eleven billion dollars of firepower, which it can, you know, of lending capacity, which it can circulate over time. And increasingly, what we're doing is directing it towards those priority technology areas that I described earlier. So it has been a big success. It has, uh, I think, made a real impact. And again, it's an illustration of not imposing burdens on taxpayers, avoiding carbon taxes. Uh, but still getting a very strong outcome and driving a technology to commerciality with, with minimal government intervention. You know, I'd describe it as minimal government intervention, as little as you have to do to get to that outcome. Once your technology is bankable, economic and bankable, I say to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, you know, you don't need to be there. Leave it to the banks. Let them, let them get on with it. And with, with solar, for instance, now, and, and particularly large-scale solar and wind, you know, there's no need for the CFC to be there. So they're doing much less lending in that area. They're moving away from that area towards areas like, like hydrogen. Minister Taylor, I wanted to ask, because you've brought up uh, what you're doing in Australia in the context of other countries and the sort of global uh, need to reduce emissions. In recent weeks, we've seen a number of different countries, China and Japan, Korea, join the EU countries in declaring a net zero target by 2050. We highly anticipate a Biden administration will do the same thing. Is that something that, one, you think Australia is going to do? And two, if you did, how would it change how you're thinking about this challenge before you? Yeah, no, good, good question. So the Paris Agreement requires, it, it sets as a goal, global net zero. And it's very important. It's global net zero. This is, you know, this is a point that's often lost in the domestic debate in Australia. You know, we're 1.3% of emissions. We, we could eliminate all our emissions overnight. It would make almost no difference. Right? So this is a global effort and must be seen that way at all times. And so we strongly endorse the global net zero. The time frame set in the Paris Agreement is the second half of the century. We'd like that to be as soon as possible. We'd like that to be the first half of the century. Uh, but our view has always been that, you know, if we're going to be asking developing countries to get there, we're going to have to offer them solutions. The difficult challenge in this debate is not targets. We can all say and look at and, uh, what we want to achieve as an outcome. Uh, again, as someone who's been around this debate for many, many years, the real challenge is how. How do we do this in a way 
which works with domestic politics in the countries where it's being done um, and works for the economy uh, more generally across the world and particularly in developing countries. You, know, you only have to go back to what happened at Copenhagen to see. You, you start imposing big costs or you, you start asking wealthier countries to do massive redistribution to the poorer countries. The politics of that is extremely difficult. Um, and this is why I say let's, let's focus on the pathways. Now, I, I would make a couple of comments about some of those goals that countries have set. There's only three that actually have them in their NDCs in the Paris Agreement, um, three. Um, so most haven't got NDCs, nationally determined contributions in the Paris Agreement around net zero. And most of those commitments that have been made, or many of them, uh, exclude methane. This is a crucial point. Methane is very, very important in our you know, agricultural sector. We're a big gas exporter. Uh, New Zealand, for instance, methane is not part of their net zero 2050 commitment and yet it's 50% of their emissions. Um, so this whole question of how you treat methane and these longer term targets is an important one and probably the two countries in the developed countries in the world where it's most important in New Zealand and Australia, New Zealand's chosen just to exclude it completely, but it is, it is an important part of uh, the debate and will need to be resolved. So I'd say it's very early days on putting any rigour around this. The rigour in the Paris Agreement is really around the 2030 targets. Mm -hmm. That's where there's true rigour and there needs to be. The carbon account, you know, carbon accounting and carbon measurement in Australia is as good as anywhere in the world and we think it's probably the best. Mm -hmm. We're very transparent. It means it's very clear where we're, where we're doing well and where we're, we're finding it harder. We put out very regular updates and reports on this. And our 2030 focus is the really sharp focus. But our technology roadmap is about saying we have to find pathways beyond 2030 into the long term as well. That is crucial. And that needs to be a global effort. So speaking of global efforts, how do you envision uh, working with a new Biden administration on some of these goals or within the G20 or other multilateral contexts? Um, where, where do you think real progress can be made? And I, I want to say that with a with one point here, which is there is a lot of focus on investing in technology in a lot of the multilateral apparatus. I think it will be a big focus of a new Biden administration. The question is how to move it faster. Yeah. Right. With climate change, it is about meeting targets and gates by a certain time frame. And, and you know that. Is there a way of being able to work through that multilateral system to help inject a little bit, not just more money or more focus, but that speed, that urgency dimension of it? The, the thing about it is when you've only got two big levers here and, and I'll put everything into one of those two levers, technologies or taxes. Now, there's lots of policies around that pretend not to be taxes, they're just implicit taxes. You're imposing something on the consumer. You know, if you set really sharp timeframes and you can't get the technology to work, you've only got one lever left, which is to impose a whole lot of tax. So, so speed is important. The, the challenge with R&D is, you know, if someone had set a target in 1980 to have an iPhone in the year 2000, it would have been sort of nonsensical. I mean, no one knew what an iPhone was. <laughs> so the nature of technology is that it is very unpredictable. I, I love Amara's law that says we typically overestimate uh, its impact in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. So it's often non-linear, or follows an S-curve, if you like, in its impact. Uh, this is why I think it's so important we have to think about this as a portfolio. And the more we can be coordinating, not in a as I say, a really top-down way, uh, it has to be somewhat organic, coordinating across the world in managing 
a portfolio, sharing learning, sharing intellectual property, uh, jointly investing in the opportunities that are the best. I think that's very powerful. Now, the good news about the United States, and it's one of the things I love about the United States, is the United States loves technology. Wow, what has come out of the United States in recent decades has been extraordinary, and it just seems to keep happening, no matter what the political context. And uh, so working with the United States on some of these technologies, I, I think is a real opportunity. I was actually in the US back in February, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I got there just as the, um, I had to come back into quarantine when I got back to Australia. We weren't expecting to have the challenges we did. But, but I was looking at uh, a number of the technology developments that are happening in the US on the ground in places like Denver and elsewhere. And, and you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, the US is actually doing some incredible stuff. Um, so we really do want to tap into that. Carbon capture and storage is one example. I mean, the US with 45Q, which is a, a, a tax, tax concession, of course, uh, has almost half the world's carbon capture and storage projects. We have the biggest one in the world, in Australia, off the Northwest Shelf. Uh, but learning and working together on that, soil carbon, um, US agriculture, you know, intensive agriculture, which is well suited to soil carbon. Lots of technology developments happening in the soil carbon space in the US. We think that's a really powerful area for us to be working with the US. In fact, many of our, our businesses are. So yes, I, I think this is, uh, offers a great potential for us. And I think it's where the US can really put its fingerprint, if you like, on what's happening globally, mm -hmm. because this is what the United States does so incredibly well. Well, that's excellent. Minister Taylor, it's been wonderful to hear about all the exciting things that are going on in uh, in your emissions reductions plans. I agree. I think, you know, I used to work at the U.S. Department of Energy doing uh, international collaboration with other countries. Australia has long been an important partner for the United States and in, uh, in, in a big part of the international portfolio on developing new technologies for this problem. And so needless to say, there'll be a lot more of that coming in the years to come. But uh, thank you so much for spending time with us and, uh, and telling us about your plans. And we look forward to checking in down the road to see if we've got uh, H2 under two and, and all the rest of them. Good idea. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Minister Taylor. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Minister Taylor for joining us this week. You can learn more about Australia's new approach in the Technology Investment Roadmap, which is linked in our website. And as always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.